From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, welcoming you to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history with a nod to all things Southern. Today, Alfred Turner and I will be talking with Naomi Gorstein and Harlan Green about the 275th anniversary of Kahal Kadosh Beth Elohim Congregation in Charleston, South Carolina. Founded in 1749, KKBE is one of the oldest Jewish congregations in America and is known as the birthplace of American Reform Judaism. Their sanctuary is the oldest in continuous use for Jewish worship in America. Naomi Gorstein is the congregation's current president and she joins historian Harlan Green today to help us trace the history of Jewish life in Charleston, which goes right back to the founding of the city. We'll also talk about the evolution of KKBE congregation and their plans to celebrate the 275th anniversary of its founding in 2024. Naomi and Harlan, it's wonderful to have you on the journal today to talk about this historic congregation in Charleston. And this year, you'll be celebrating your 275th anniversary. And this congregation has quite a history, not just in Charleston, but literally in the history of Judaism worldwide, right? Actually, it's, it's part of American history, strongly, because the Reform Movement was, really began at Kahal Kadosh Beth Elohim, KKBE. Well, well, let's talk a minute. People who are not familiar with the different uh, areas of Judaism, you hear in particular in the news today a lot about Orthodox Jewry and then Reform and Conservative. But your congregation actually started off as an Orthodox congregation. And then uh, in the 19th century, things changed. And truly, I mean, if you're going to have reform, you're going to have to be reformed from something. So it's a very early congregation, you know, Jews in South Carolina from the 1690s, but it's in 1749 that the congregation finally gets together enough Jews in the city or in the state to do this. And they're following um, a strict kind of Sephardic or Spanish-Portuguese kind of ritual. Um, you know, Charleston's so much defined by England and the many of the early Jewish congregations in London were the Spanish-Portuguese. Um, Bevis Marks in London is the offshoot here is Kahal Kadosh Beth Elohim. So everyone is doing this old world religion. And for a while that works. The American Revolution comes along. Jews are actually born in the city of Charleston. They're not from the old world. And they see that there's an old world religion that's not adapting itself particularly well to to the new um, America. And so these young men petition the um, board of the congregation. They want... They want a sermon in English. Not everyone understands Hebrew or Ladino, which would be the Spanish-Portuguese kind of version of Yiddish. They want shorter services. They're really concerned. They want their children to be able to grow up, you know, being Jewish and not necessarily tied to the old world. So that's what sparks them. They really want an American form of Judaism. One of the leaders of this was Isaac Harvey, who was very much a, a literary figure in Charleston and Charleston circles. Well, you know, here he is, and he's 
born in Charleston. His parents are not. Um, he runs a school. He's very intellectual. He's abreast of what's happening in the world. And he has many children. And he sees, you know, that Judaism is losing its children. So he's among others, almost all American-born, in one exception being Judah Benjamin's father, petitioned, you know, say, you know, we want these changes. And in 1824, so this is also... This year is not just the 275th anniversary of the founding of organized Jewish life in South Carolina. It's also the 200th anniversary of the birth of reform. So in 1824, as I said, you know, they they demand these reforms. They're not accepted. They withdraw and they create their own prayer book. They create their own congregation. And it's an astonishing thing for thousands of years of Judaism. Now, all of a sudden, they're saying, we need to take women more importantly. It's the, not the letter of the law that we want to follow, that it's the spirit of the law. First of all, there's a beautiful synagogue built in the 1790s, uh, and we have drawings of that. It's destroyed by fire. And when the new one is built, Isaac Harvey and his friends are in charge, right? Well, there's been enough movement by now from 1824 to 1840 um, when they're building back this new Greek revival building. The spirit of reform has grown. The seed that Isaac Harvey planted has grown. And the controversy comes, yes, more people. They actually want a organ in the congregation, as many other Charleston um, religious organizations have. And if you were following all of the Talmud and all of the habits and strictures that grew up after biblical times, supposedly you're not supposed to have organ music, you know, in a synagogue until the temple is rebuilt um, in Jerusalem. And so, again, this is incredible. And, and when they do dedicate the synagogue, they will say, this is our temple. This is our Jerusalem. And so then in 1840, 1841, they put the organ in, and that really is making a statement. So his seeds of reform have now taken over the entire congregation. Naomi, I see you nodding your head. Hearing what Harlan said, this is our temple, so we will have music. That's a powerful statement. It's a very powerful statement, and it was a very difficult break having— come together after the fire and having all these difficulties to put that organ in and make that statement, Hmm. that was a a permanent cut. And at that point, the Orthodox went and formed their own synagogue, and that is BSBI, which, uh, Harlan, you can help me with the the length, the whole— Beth Shalom, Beth Israel. Beth Shalom, Beth Israel, which is also a historic synagogue down Mm -hmm. in Charleston Mm -hmm. as well. You have the split, but then we come to the Civil War. Charleston is post-war, very poor. Everybody knows that. But the two congregations do get back together again, and that's where you have the, the full name now. Well, so the Network HaKadosh Beth Elohim. So there's an Orthodox congregation. Actually, when they first withdrew from KKBE, they became Sheriff Israel, which means remnant of Israel. And so then they tried to amalgamate. And so they would literally take turns. One Sabbath, it would be Orthodox. And the next Sabbath, it would be Reform. And I think, and I think the musical director had a really hard time with that, <laughs> trying to adapt from, you know, what Sabbath is this? And so then, but eventually, again, the Reformers won. 
one. And then you know, most Americans think of Jewish immigration to the United States, 1880s. And indeed, Charleston does do that. And there is an Orthodox congregation, B'rith Shalom. Another congregation is founded. And KKBE gets along very friendly with them. When um, one of them is expanding their synagogue, we give them our old pews. So you know, although it's really our anniversary, but it truly is a celebration of all Jewish life, not just in the city of Charleston, but in the state of South Carolina. You know, the birth of Judaism in this state, the birth of Reform Judaism in this country. So, again, it's an astonishing story. Well, people don't realize Charleston and South Carolina in the 17th and 18th century attracted Jewish settlers. As you mentioned, they were primarily Sephardic. Uh, some it actually had come from South America directly to Charleston. And South Carolina had the largest Jewish population in the country until the 1820s. Charleston was the largest population of any American city. And that always astonishes people. And with no digs at people, but especially for people from New York, they have a very difficult time <laughs> believing it. It's a mixed metaphor, but when one says that Charleston really was the Mecca for um, Jews in America, it truly was. If Charleston had 600 Jews, maybe New York had 400. Yeah. And, and now I think you mentioned, Harlan, uh, this congregation is the oldest Reformed congregation in the world, literally. <laughs> Our building is the oldest Reformed congregation. Uh, our synagogue building is because of what happened in Kristallnacht. You know, there's certain Reform Judaism really starts in Germany. It's Isaac Harvey and his friends who bring it here to this hemisphere. So with all the destruction during um, World War II, so our building is the oldest synagogue, Reform synagogue structure left in the world. And the oldest synagogue building in the United States in continual use. The Newport Synagogue is older, but for about 60 years, that congregation was inactive. So again, it's not just a historic congregation, but a historic um, building as well. well. Well, as part of your 275th anniversary celebration, you have a number of keystone events planned, Naomi. Why don't you talk about those? Sure. I would love to. Uh, we took a lot of time. We planned. We have a 275th committee. And one of the things I wanted to say is that, um, you know, as we view this this anniversary, it's really truly a landmark in American history. And many people who weren't necessarily involved, although they were members of our congregation, are really getting involved and engaged in this. So it has really brought our whole community together. And so we have five keystone events. We've tried to cover um, a variety of different aspects, history, culture, wellness, but, um, Religion, history, religion. culture, oh, service, and wellness. Thank you. Thank you. You have a very good I have pamphlet. it right in front of, <laughs> right in front of me. Um, so the first event is going to be called Jews and Justice, and uh, that is going to be happening on Thursday, February 8th. And the panelists are Judge Richard Gurgel. And all of these panelists have written books, which is really interesting about civil rights. Um, Judge Gurgel wrote um, Unexampled Courage, The Blinding of Sergeant a Isaac Woodard, and The Awakening of President Harry Truman and Judge J. Wadey's Waring. Um, we have Armand Durfner, who is a distinguished Charleston civil rights attorney who successfully argued voting rights cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. And he is the co-author of Justice Deferred, Race and the Supreme Court. 
And then we have a third person who's I'm very interested to hear, Brad Snyder, who is a Georgetown University professor of constitutional law and 20th century legal history. And he is the author of Democratic Justice, Felix Frankfurter, the Supreme Court, and the Making of a Liberal Establishment. Um, the moderator is going to be Edward Felsenthal, who is the former editor-in-chief of Time magazine. And Mr. Felsenthal and his work as a journalist led to two Pulitzer Prizes as he covered the Supreme Court for the Wall Street Journal. So we're very excited about that first event. Then in March, it's the holiday of Purim. Purim is similar to many Jewish holidays. In history, there is a terrible king. He is taken over by somebody who hates Jews, Haman, and he is able through his daughter, Esther, I'm sorry, his niece, Esther, to con the, she becomes married to the king and convinces him to save the Jewish people. And so— And you'll find that in the, the, the book of Esther, The book right? of Esther. And so it's a big, you know, rollicking, fun holiday. And so we're going to be having a Purim festival, which is how we usually celebrate, at The Bend in North Charleston. And this is a community event free of charge, kosher food— rides, games, humantaschen, lots of really f live music. So that's going to be happening March 24th, and um, that's a Sunday, and it's actually on Purim. And then in May, during Memorial Day weekend, May 24th through 26th, we are going to be celebrating with an event just for the 200th anniversary, and we are bringing in the cantorial students from the Hebrew Union College the Debbie Friedman School of Music, and they will be doing a cantorial celebration of Reform music. So it's a history of Reform Judaism through its liturgy and the spoken word. And the music will be really beautiful and historic, and we're, it's going to be very exciting. And then the, the next event will be taking place in the fall, and that is going to be a, a series of tours of prominent Jews who are historic figures in Charleston. We were partnering with the Preservation Society, and that will be from October 9th to November 2nd. And then we're having two galas in January or February, we haven't picked the date yet, of 2025. And uh, that's going to be really exciting a way to culminate everything. But that's just the year, and then we're going 15 months. So we have some other events planned for that as well, some music events and some other things that'll be very exciting as well. Naomi, some of our listeners might be surprised that there is a woman president of a Jewish congregation, but your congregation over the years has uh, been more open in terms of relationships with women. They started off segregated in the balcony and very early in the 20th century, they came down. Part of that was so families could worship together. It's true. And um, the women have always had a very strong place at KKBE. Uh, the women are are the people who brought the eternal light that we have that's in our congregation. We are the second religious school that was formed in the state of South Carolina. Uh, the Savannah Mikvah Israel was the first. Uh, we have the Hebrew Orphan Society that was started by the women as well. Are there some others, Harlan? There well, the you know, history of women in KKBE, it's, it's 
long and remarkable talking about the music. You know, Panina Moise, who's considered the first Jewish American woman to publish a book of poetry as a member of the congregation, she wrote some of the very first hymns um, ever used by the congregation, which I'm sure the cantorial students will be again using her words. Um, it was actually in the 19th century that women were invited from the balconies downstairs and Women have been crucial. And the most interesting thing I feel, and I'm sure Stephanie agrees with me too, our lead rabbi is a woman, Stephanie Alexander, who upon her arrival in Charleston, you know, how we love our genealogy and studying of genealogy in Charleston, um, it was discovered that there was an Alexander among the founding of the congregation. Wow. And that was a brother of a direct ancestor of hers. So um, the congregation is certainly committed to social justice and does a lot of on those issues as well. And, you know, women have been equals, if not superior, to um, the men of the congregation for a long time. And I would add to that that um, I am the fourth female president of our congregation, and it actually is my second time being president at KKBE. Uh, I started out, my first my first tenure was between uh, 2017 to 19, and, um, you know, it was, a, it was a huge honor for me then, and when they asked me a second time, I, I was very proud, and I, I am eternally grateful that I have the opportunity to serve my congregation in this way. Well, what does the president of the congregation do? <laughs> what don't we do? <laughs> <laughs> we, I think each each president has their portfolio of what they choose to make important. For me, uh, the second time, it's all about the 275th. I mean, I am in very involved with the planning and setting things up and connecting people throughout. Uh, we have all kinds of committees. We have uh, things that are happening within the congregation. And then we also have things that are outward facing that we do with the Charleston community as well. So it's a great, a great chance to interact with people of all different kinds of skill sets. Well, I think in terms of information, you know, uh, Episcopal churches have their vestries or sessions in Presbyterian. So, I mean, you're president, but is there uh, a ruling A leadership group kind of? A a leadership group, what have you. We have our board of trustees, which is about 17 people. And um, we have the people who are the the leaders, the vice presidents of certain committees, for example, you know, our treasurer, uh, our VP of development, of membership, the past president— president-elect, we meet as an executive board, and then we have the other trustees as well. And so our executive committee meets once a month, and our board of trustees meets once a month, and then the individual committees work um, on their own as well. So, and you run it all. I run it all. Right. And and their, you know, their brotherhood, and then their sisterhood, and, you know, and their... Or, you know, fa- various national Jewish organizations like Hadassah or, and, you know, which, which other congregants um, participate in. Okay. Could you please elaborate for, the, for those of us who are not familiar? Well, just the men of the congregation certainly becoming, you know, the brotherhood. They get together, do their own programming. Um, again, the sisterhood run the, um, you know, Judaica gift shop, do that kind of thing. And 
one of the women of our congregation, Mrs. Jacob Raisin, um, founded the local chapter of Hadassah, which is you know a Jewish women's organization, which is national. And so then there is you know community life that many of our members of our congregation support other community-wide Jewish organizations as well. So, you know, very very plugged in, very central to Jewish life in the city of Charleston. All right. You mentioned that, that your current rabbi could claim kinship to the first congregation. Are there still families who are descended from those original founders? It's really interesting. Yes, they are. The names have changed, but there are descendants of those original congregants from 1749 who are still um, active in the congregation. And the interesting thing is, and I think Naomi represents the best of this, you know, the Sun Belt, so many people are retiring and moving to the South, moving to South Carolina, moving to Charleston. And there has been an incredible reinvigoration of the congregation from these people coming from, you know, as we say, from off, and seeing that this congregation does not just hold an incredible place in American history, but also holds a vital place in the development of the city of Charleston. So while old families exist, I would say the majority of the congregants have maybe, like so much of South Carolina, has moved here maybe in the last 20 or 30 years, you know, creating, you know, a much more vital congregation, not just with the old families who've been very welcoming to this Mm -hmm. new breath of air. And can I add to that? One of the things that we are thinking about is that we value our history and we We honor it. We want to learn about it. And we also want to think about our future. What does the future hold for us? How do we engage young people, young families, so that we have a bright future ahead of us? 200 years ago, you know, Isaac Harvey was faced with this dilemma as well, too. How do you keep an ancient religion relevant? I have to ask a a question as we move toward the end of our time here, unfortunately. But it it occurs to me that 275 years ago, the beginning of your congregation, so many firsts and superlatives attached to KK Beth Elohim. But going back to the colonial days, how is it that South Carolina was so open to religious freedom in those days where there were some colonies that uh, were restrictive. Am I correct? Well, there are two things. This goes back to the fundamental constitutions of Carolina, which never actually became law, but were observed anyway. And it said in the fundamental constitutions, anyone who believed in God, period. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is around what time? Uh, This is from the beginning. Okay. 1670-ish? Yes. Yes. The fundamental constitutions went through at least four iterations, none of which were ever adopted. But they all included this, if you believed in God, you were welcomed in South Carolina. And that also meant that they could own property. The only people who were discriminated against, and this was by legislative action of the Colonial Assembly, were Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. They were forbidden to settle in South Carolina. And, of course, that eventually changed. That ev- actually, they were some of a lot of them were here were coming in, and they were, uh, you bring a shipload of Irish immigrants in, and they were supposedly all from Ulster. They were all uh, Presbyterian. No, they weren't. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and we know that there were 
underground Catholic religious observation uh, and, and a community before religious freedom came with our state constitutions. Uh, but the fact that the Jewish settlers were welcome here, and, and you go back to the older names like uh, da Costa and Moes and Tobias, and then Francis Salvador, the first Jew to serve in a parliamentary body in the Western world, was a member of one of our provincial congresses. He also was killed very early in the American Revolution. So it's, it is a part of our state's history, and uh-huh. it's very much a part of American history, and people don't they just don't know it. They're not. They're not familiar with the fact that South Carolina was very much multicultural before the term was ever invented in the 21st century. And certainly a world port as well, too, which we think it's only happening in the 21st century. But Charleston was so plugged into international commerce. And again, the Jews of the Caribbean and the Jews of Europe were all part of this network as well. You know, we all think of our great South Carolina heroine, Eliza Lucas Pinckney, and, you know, bringing um, Indigo in and becoming one of the founding mothers. You know, an untold story of that is the reason that Indigo was so successful in the state of South Carolina is because Moses Lindo, the Sephardic Jew from London, Mm. comes to Charleston, and he's the one who persuaded Parliament to start doing the price supports for Indigo. So to Walter's point, I think that's actually a small example to show that Jewish history is so interwoven in what we think of as distinctively South Carolina history, it's just perhaps not as well known. It's a remarkable story, isn't it? Yes, and it's ongoing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it's the thing that, one of the things that I had been told when I first, I mean, I'm from New York originally, so coming down here and learning this incredibly rich story and history was just fascinating to me. I knew nothing of it. I, I My background was from the, the Eastern European Jews coming over from Russia. And mm-hmm. um, so this was all new to me. And I remember being told that the Jews came here because they were allowed to work. That was a big pull for them. They were allowed to work, where in, in other places they just weren't allowed. And so that, that just really struck me that, you know, to have the ability to work and, and have a livelihood for yourself, I mean, that's everything. Well, and, and part of that post-Civil War migration to South Carolina, they came to Charleston, but Beaufort very quickly became a center. I mean, then they went to the hinterlands. Every small town had a Jewish merchant. Sumter in particular, but every little town, Gaffney, and you know, and they were well respected into the South Carolina community. Going back, Walter, to what you said, you know, almost anyone who believed in God was welcome in South Carolina. And I think the Jews in these small towns throughout upstate central South Carolina were respected. People of the book, you know, the merchants thought, well, these are people who worship their God, who take care of their family. And you know what? They're a whole lot like us. So you mentioned always trying to keep children involved. Do you still have a school teaching? We have the Hebrews? largest we have the largest religious school in South Carolina. They meet on Sundays. And in addition for the kids who are getting ready for confirmation, they come on Wednesdays. And many of the students who after they finish their confirmation or even before we have a—it's uh, kind of like an assistant teacher. We call them madrachim, uh, which is teacher, like a 
mini teacher, and they come in on Sundays and help with the kids. And we've had a lot of a lot of these young people are coming in and are really excited to help with the younger ones as well. I hate to do this, but we need to wrap things up. Before we sign off, Naomi, any last words for our listeners? I just want to say that we're all so excited and energized about this year. We have so many wonderful programs, and in addition to the things I've mentioned, we're going to be doing some smaller programs to uh, to really focus on various different groups so that everybody will have something to come to and be a part of. And that'll all be on your website, right? It'll all be on our website, and we have a separate website. It's a link that goes to a 275th website, okay. and there's going to be lots of great swag. Okay. And Harlan? I'll maybe just take the historian's view and quote the line that's on the National Archives, what's past is prologue. We are who we are because what we've gone through and what we've gone through is going to determine what we are in the future. And it's just nice to have these pivot points, these dates that are truly just in a continuum of time, but it's a nice place to sit there and look back and look forward. And I think that's what this event and these whole series of events allows us to do. All right. Well, Naomi Gorstein and Harlan Green, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did, and I hope you learned something. The fundamental constitutions of 1669 granted freedom of worship in the colony of Carolina to everyone but Catholics, and Jewish immigrants were right there with the earliest settlers. When Charleston's Jewish community chartered Kahal Kadosh Beth Elohim in 1749, it became one of the first five Jewish congregations in America. It has a long and important history, and it's a vital part of South Carolina history. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. New episodes of Walter Edgar's Journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org on the SCETV app, as well as your favorite podcast provider. We'll talk again soon. Mm-hmm.